This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl Welcome, everyone. Um, this is pretty exciting for uh, for me and myself. Um, uh, but not too much about us, anyway. Uh, I just wanted to introduce um, our initial guests, who are then have been inviting more guests, and we've been inviting guests. So it's all layered of guesting from guests from guests. But um, on the right, Sophie Krier. She's a relational artist and an editor. And she works to, with Eric Wong, who is an um, uh, editor, placemaker, um, designer. And uh, together they travel Europe. And this is uh, their first physical um, uh, spot where they landed for their project. And you will introduce the project yourselves. So I leave you with this. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful day and um, well, enjoy. Je hebt toch een microfoon? Oh, I have it. Yeah. I'm mic'd. <laughs> This is so oh, typical for us. That's a bumpy start, guys. <laughs> um, welcome, everyone. And uh, thank you for ha having come all the way here. And so timely also. It's wonderful. We're starting earlier than planned. Uh, before I, I say a few words about what brought us here, I wanted to just check two things. Uh, one is related to... The pandemic, we cannot, <laughs> we cannot avoid it. Is everyone okay with the way we are now here with the doors open? And I might be on the floor later on drawing. Eric might move around with the mic because if, you're, uh, if you don't have the, the mic in front of you, then um, you won't make it into the round and about radio that we're trying to make. So is everyone okay with, with that this way? I see nodding heads. Okay. And does anyone not want their picture taken? That's also important that I check. No hands? Okay, you're all good. Take it away then. Um, so indeed, thank you, Rutger, for your welcome word. We are here in the Nockwolligen barn in a barn that you built own-handedly over the last few years. And uh, there's a beautiful view to that side little birds, and there's a beautiful view behind me <laughs> as well, looking over to Irade and, and the narrow to Irade. And we might hear some traffic in the background. Maybe John will pass, <laughs> the crofter from up the hill, or maybe some camper vans will pass that want to stay at John's uh, yard and ridge where it's possible to stay overnight. So we might hear all those things. I'm saying that for our listeners <laughs> so they know where we are. Um, so Eric and I, we are in search of the pluriverse, uh, which is 
a word that you could understand as if a universe would be one world, then a pluriverse would be a world which makes room for many worlds to exist and to thrive in it. Um, and this is part of uh, an initiative called the Traveling Academy, which was set up by uh, an institution in the Netherlands for the arts, for architecture and for digital culture. And what they wanted was to um, find a way to exchange uh, not only formal and institutionalized, but also informal ways of knowing and ways of living. That's what the Traveling Academy is about. And Eric and I were invited to curate the first edition of that, and we baptized it In Search of the Pluriverse. And the form we chose is a podcast series, which is why we're recording this barn talk today. Um, and um, nothing of this is set in stone. We are students of that Traveling Academy. Uh, one very nice comment in these days from one of our guests, Anna, was maybe it should be a staying academy and not a traveling academy. <laughs> uh, because what is the value of travel today? We, we, we might talk about that in a second. Um, so the, the title we gave to our coming here is Thriving on Mill, uh, because it's something we really wonder about what it takes to live here and to thrive here for humans and, and non-humans. What are the challenges and the threats? And somehow this landscape seems to bring everything into focus. <laughs> you see humans walking from very far and you also see them disappearing for a long time. Um, so the scale of the island versus the scale of all those globalized systems that also determine the living conditions here. That's what we're interested in. in um, exchanging with you about um, today. Yeah, so what we've been doing the last couple of days was tasting the landscape, interviewing people, the neighbors of Rutgermiek, Rutgermiek themselves. We interviewed Judy, Jimmy, John, the three J's that live around the corner. <laughs> but we also went on a boat trip with the guests that we invited for this uh, branch of, of, of our search for the pluriverse. Um, we went on a boat trip with Marc Chardin and his son, and um, we were on a quest to, to take out a, a, a mega load of plastic that was on one of the beaches of, uh, on Turanigan, on sure. the other side of the nature reserve. And it's been collecting there for uh, quite a long time, I think for a couple of years. And it was really um, an interesting undertaking to go there with like eight people on a boat, which we, we sailed there. And uh, we were just capable with the, with the hands that were there to carry everything down the hill and um, put it now in a sort of a semi-depot and it's going to be brought to the landfill, I guess. I hope. But it's now gone from the beach, from the nature reserve. And during that uh, boat ride, we, we made conversations. I recorded a lovely conversation with Vari on the boat and also with Steve, who was on the boat. He's not here today. Steve Littlewood, that is. And um, yeah, Mull as an island was our ultimate host, you could say. And um, this uh, conversation is not the end, but it's it, the whole week sort of, we, we arrived first, the two of us, and then slowly the guests started to arrive and then we undertook this, this day of plastic cleaning and talking and sailing. And um, so it accumulates to more, and um, this is somehow the, 
you know, I can't say the end, but it's sort of things evolve into this talk in this afternoon. Mm. And, and it wouldn't have been possible if uh, Mick and Rutger, as our wonderful, wonderful hosts, this week wouldn't have nourished us, literally, <laughs> with the wonderful food you cook, but also nourished us with the wonderful places where we could stay. Eric was sleeping and is sleeping tonight still over there behind the soft wall of blankets that you see there. And I was sleeping in the wonderful resident um, housing, the prism. Uh, and thank you also for opening up your uh, contacts to us, because we know how vulnerable that is. If you arrive in a place and you spend years trying to make your, find your own place there, it's also, yeah, it's a, it's a vulnerable thing to share your network. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for Martin Lowe, who is quietly sitting in the corner, assuring that all of this uh, is um, recorded for prosperity. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Before we will introduce everybody properly to each other, um, we'd like to share, to share uh, like two mini stories of our own experience here. And I'd like to share one when I was walking back from Jimmy, who I interviewed, a neighbor who's, walking, who's living at the other side of this bay. And I'm always very quickly disoriented. So this landscape for me is a nightmare because I never know where I am because I see water everywhere. I see other islands, I see beaches and I just don't know where I am. But finally, when I was walking back and I took the time to walk back from Jimmy to here, I thought, oh, this is how it works. You know, it's just the other side of the bay. And then I thought all these fingers, you know, all these fingers of land that stretch into the water. That reminded me of the seaweed that Mick loves so much and talks about and swims with today also. With Anna, they swim with the seaweeds. And all of a sudden I thought, well, I'm walking on this giant piece, this body of seaweed. So I was imagining Merl as a giant living body of seaweed. So that was a fun thought. And while I thought that the only car that passed me during the whole walk home that took like 30 minutes was that cute little red car of the Royal Mail who was delivering mail, which is always a <laughs> comforting thought that the mail is always delivered, even in a place like this. So that, that was my story. Um, my, my mini story would be um, when we were out gathering the plastic, and I've shared this story with our, our guests last night, but um, there were, you notice that a lot of rope through the currents and the wind gets pushed into in between the, the rocks. And then you, you, know, you, you pull a tiny little bit and then this whole clutter comes out at some point. And then Raiko-san here was trying to untangle it. <laughs> and uh, when we were sitting there, we realized that one rope had become many different ropes, which themselves had kind of made one big messy knot. And that for me, this was also, uh, I saw it as a, this is, you know, problems sometimes um, are super complex and of course they are all entangled to all kinds of things but can we kind of break them down or can we see the simple parts of them that's what it made me think of this big knot <laughs> big blue knot let me introduce let us introduce all the voices in this beautiful circle here today and we'll do that very shortly but just so that we know who is speaking from where and uh, the first one person I would like to introduce is Hannah Fischer. Welcome, Hannah. Uh, you just opened this barn talk today with uh, your own musical sense, with your own 
you told us right before we, uh, before all this started, that you were going to play something really from here, something that breathed the sense of being here. So thank you so much for that. And you are also here on behalf of the, and I'm going to try to pronounce it right, SMID, <laughs> uh, Southwest Mill and Iona Development uh, Fund, because you, as a director there, you coordinated the survey on locals' views uh, on the impact of tourism. Um, I think 92 residents of Southwest Mill and Iona took part out of the 723 uh, residents in this part of Mill. So, uh, and you'll, I'm sure in the discussion later, you'll be sharing some insights from that. So, welcome, Hannah. And welcome, Judy Gibson, neighbor of Rutger and Meek, living on Air Aid. If you pass the Narrows from Mull to Air Aid, which is always a magical thing to do, um, she lives in the first white cottage that you will meet. And she's been living, she's been coming here to Air Aid and Mull for the, for the whole of her life. But five years ago, she relocated here permanently. And um, we interviewed you and we welcome you back. Welcome, Naoko. There you are. <laughs> welcome, Naoko Mabon. Welcome, Naoko Mabon. You recently settled in Oban from Aberdeen uh, with your partner, who is Scott-ish, we learned <laughs> that there is a... A camper van is turning behind me. That's the thing that happens here. <laughs> uh, you recently settled in Oban from Aberdeen um, and you work as a contemporary arts curator, Naoko, um, interested in making relationships between differences. So, for example, at the moment you're involved in the natural dye garden uh, at, uh, near the Lockfield School and you brought about conversations between uh, an artist from Oban and artists worldwide and gardens worldwide who also work with natural dyes. So that's a, a nice example of how you bridge those differences. Welcome, Naok. And welcome, Vati Kilin from Iona. You're an artist focusing on the indigenous culture and heritage and alongside your jewelry business that you build up in the past years, um, you are a long live Gaelic learner, a language that's, that is not longer alive, speaking anymore, but you're an active learner for the language. And I also think an advocate for the language. And uh, you are currently, beside your jewelry business, investigate, uh, you're investigating the effects of sound pollution on marine life. And later this year, that will result in a theatrical moment or event um, on the beach where a couple of years ago, many, many whales died. Mm. Right, Vani? Maybe we can talk about that. It will pop up in the circle. Sure. Welcome, Vani. Welcome, Renatus. Renatus Derbidge, you come here from around Bunessen. That's where you live and work. You are a biologist, geographer and philosopher, and you co-run the LEAP Croft, which has a couple of cows, chickens, uh, a vegetable garden, 30 hectares, and you're interested in self-sufficiency of food, and the building is community-owned, so that's very interesting that there's also a community aspect to your work. So, welcome, Renatus. And welcome, Rebecca Atkinson-Lord, Atkinson joining us from Tobermory. Welcome. 
And you are the newly appointed chief executive and artistic director of the Anne Tober and Mo Theatre. And we stumbled upon an open letter in the September issue of Round and About, <laughs> in which you introduce yourself to the Mill community. And we were so happy uh, to read that you run a theatre on wheels, because you literally bring film screenings and live shows to the different communities on Mill. And we were talking these past two days about things on wheels, stables on wheels, um, milking installations on wheels, fences on wheels. So now we, we have a theater on wheels in our midst. Welcome, Rebecca. From Glasgow, welcome Tim and Raiko. From Collins and Gotto studio. Um, you both met in San Francisco in 1985. You've been in Glasgow for about 12 years now. Your youths were spent in Rhode Island and Tokyo, respectively. Um, and you're known with your studio for your work in engaged environmental art with also a very strong social component. In the last 10 years, for example, you were working on plen the Plein Air LP, um, which is a huge project with all these scientists involved and sound composers and computer programmers and ethno-physiologists, uh, <laughs> all of this to catch the breath of a tree. So I think that catches um, the span of your work. And you're involved also in reforesting Scotland, which is, I think, also interesting to mention for this talk. Welcome, Tim and Reiko. And welcome, Anna van Leeuwen from the Netherlands. <laughs> you are a passionate regenerative farmer and you co-founded the Embassy of the North Sea, which aims to give a voice and legal personhood to the North Sea. Short. Short and strong. But enough, <laughs> for now. <laughs> You suddenly notice when, like, one line is missing, eh? don't you? Like, you notice it. <laughs> On is happy. Good. <laughs> Welcome, Tom. Tom Morton. You join us from Fife, Edinburgh, on the east coast of Scotland. You're founder of Arc Architects, and you take a big interest in local building traditions. Uh, for example, also repairing mud walls. I love that example, I keep bringing it up. <laughs> You've, uh, you're in the process of writing about island architecture and, and its history, going back deep, deep, deep in time. And time is really a thing for you. Uh, time as an architectural element and time also as something which can help us understand where we are today and what we see and don't see. Uh, for example, the, the absence that we could feel in Chiraragan. So, welcome Tom. And finally, our hosts, Rutger and Miek. So you landed here five years ago, coming from the Netherlands, and you've been working hard and building hard to physically make place here. And now that place is beginning to find its form as a precise and very qualitative place for study, art, and encounter. And we say it again, we're super happy that, we're, <laughs> that we can stay here. And there dip is... into your world and your network. And there is one voice uh, whom we would have wished was here, but she isn't here with us physically. Her name is Asle. There is an envelope with her name on the shelf over there. She was our fifth guest uh, that we had invited from the Netherlands. She has, a, uh, she has Turkish and Thai roots. And with COVID plus Brexit plus Turkey being on the red list of the UK, she never was allowed to cross the border and make it here. So she's the absent voice. <laughs> in this barn talk, but I want to acknowledge her absence today because it was not a choice. So, uh, And she is bringing 
something into the discussion which will kind of doodle down there, but we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, because first I have to um, tell a little bit about this talk and how we organized it. This talk has a lot of preparing behind it and we've scripted it many, many times. As I said before, it's sort of we're working up towards this talk and we make it for ourselves quite important. But at the same time, we cannot do more and be more than visitors that bring people together and make it possible to share ideas, experiences, knowledge. And um, from scripting it quite tightly and also quite maybe top-down, you could say, yesterday we decided with, with our guests that we would radically do it differently. And what we liked about talking in the past few days with each other, that, that there was this sort of natural round. We, we were sitting around a table and somebody would start talking and then somebody would take over and then somebody would add an anecdote or an experience or some sharing some knowledge about something or giving context to something. So that idea of talking in a round, not in a specific order, but to, to share well, it's a bit like a talking stick. You give the talking stick to somebody else. We have a talking stick here today. It's this microphone. And um, Sophie and I will sort of facilitate this talk. So Sophie will write down, she makes notes, and the notes are being put on the floor here. We are going to talk in two rounds. And there's no script. There's not really a brief. We, we have a sort of a start. And... I think we're going to have two rounds of, let's say, 40 minutes, and in between we have a break because we think we, you cannot talk focused and concentrated for over than over 50 minutes or an hour. Um, oh, is it me? No, no, no. Because I'm relaxing, but maybe... It's me. What's you? Um, and to get things going, we were thinking that it would be good that our guests would start sharing an experience... Uh, that they had in the past days they were here on Mel. And then everyone, it's a very horizontal talk, could step in or ask for the microphone and react to it. And I'll start with um, something that Asli brought up. She couldn't be here, but we tried to, to involve her uh, in the project. And uh, she was quite upset, as we were, about the fact that she couldn't make it here. And that had to do with COVID, it had to do with Brexit. It also had to do with her Turkish passport and the fact that Turkey is on the red, li red COVID list. But it wasn't the first time in her life that she has a complicated nationality to be able to travel. So she was stuck at home. She's a cook and she's a weaver. And she was thinking about these microbe... How do you say that? You have a, um, a sourdough... Bacterial... Bacteria cultures? Culture. I always forget the word. The bacteria, that bacterial cultures that she works with, with fermentation, but also with baking bread, they can travel freely still over the world. So um, she was wondering how it would be to introduce foreign sourdough, for instance, cultures into this environment and what would happen. And that sort of unleashed uh, a conversation between Rutger or it, it sort of unfolded a story that Rutger has with Judy. And Rutger shared, maybe you can tell it yourself, you, you started a sourdough and shared it with Judy, right? Yeah, so Judy and I, I think we both started with sourdough pretty much at the same time 
but both struggling quite a bit. So we needed each other's help and each other's starters to sort of get through the initial difficult phase. So that created a strong bond. So we started to exchange uh, our successes and failures um, from an early start. How did that work? Calling each other up every day like, Judy. Yeah, I think mostly when, when we would, at least for, my, for myself, when I visit Judy, and, which is quite regularly, uh, when she, uh, she might not notice, when, when she's not in the kitchen, I just quickly smell her. Um, <laughs> you stick your nose under see, the door. Because I'm, 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 uh, I'm just fascinated with, because we, we sort of started with the same base and it evolves, you know, two households, we're a kilometer and a half apart. Uh, but we have a very different water um, uh, supply, um, so and a different like microbacterial uh, like I think colonies in our houses. So I think this must have you know changed. And they often say that it's the the baker, uh, the traces of the baker uh, you can find in the in the sourdough, yeah. which which is more de is very strongly defining. So it's just fascinating uh, sort of a long term local project of two households evolving in different ways. I think that's a remarkable story, Judy, that a sourdough culture sort of relates to, to the individual baker and tastes therefore differently. So that's the notion that Asli wants to bring in. And maybe now I can invite one of our guests, maybe Anna? Yeah. Do I have to get the mic? Yeah, I will bring you the mic. Thanks. Um... Yeah, well, which experience to share? Um, I've only been here a few days, but uh, I feel um, almost overwhelmed by inputs because it's such a fantastic, really beautiful island. And um, but I, I think I went to, when I was talking to John, uh, the, the neighbor, the crofter. Yeah, he's just uh, across here actually. Perhaps we'll just see him. It would be nice if he just passes by now. Uh, we're talking about farming, actually, because I also started a farm in uh, in the Netherlands. And um, I asked him if he um, he was also uh, selling his uh, his meat, for example, sheep, directly uh, to the people on the island. And he told me that actually that was very little or to none uh, that he was um, uh, selling on the island itself and it and it made me wonder and it's also a question for you and I'm, I would be very intrigued to learn more about that but uh, how does it actually work with food on the islands and how do you uh, produce food here and do you sell it locally do is there a food sovereignty culture here do you are you independent of the mainland or are you very dependent on on the supermarket structures and uh, because with my um Dutch eyes, which is of course outsider eyes, it seems like almost the perfect place to uh, sort of grow and uh, feed your own community. So um, yeah, that would be uh, something that came up for me. And another thing that uh, I would like to share was looking into soils and the soils here are so different from the soils that I, uh, I'm used to. And uh, I was reading this beautiful book about peats uh, and peat and moors and bogs and mountains and how different the soils there are and how you have these anaerobic soils and anaerobic soils and uh, how that affects the bracken and the, the, the sheep and the grazing and all kinds of questions related to that and everybody seems to dislike bracken so 
<laughs> also, I have a question about that. Uh, how do you feel about Brecken and, and why? And um, and this morning, Mika and I went for a swim. Uh, that was magical. Uh, and I think I felt the same magic here on the island when I uh, when I was in the in one of these old forests where you still have this rainforest feel and all these layers of mosses and, and lichens and you f it feels so abundant and so alive. And the same feeling I had underwater, uh, swimming, like um, snorkeling, so you could see the... Uh, suddenly understand that seaweeds are also a forest. And that was such a beautiful experience to uh, to swim along. <laughs> yeah. Is there someone who directly wants to respond? I'm looking at the crofter. <laughs> you don't have to. We can also j just, you know, collect some stories from our guests. Maybe Tom? To speak? Yes. Um, so last night we had, we had a bit of a round and uh, I felt I gave a, an emotional sharing of my, my uh, sort of sensory response to place. And I thought perhaps today I should give a more professional response to balance out maybe the impression uh, I gave of my work to some of my colleagues. Um, so I wrote some notes and did some points of recommendation to, I guess, to contribute what it maybe comes from my experience to this place. Um, and I think when I come as a professional person that deals with place, it's always it's always a kind of a team approach where uh, the people of the place really are the experts in the place. And, and what you bring when you come from the outside is uh, experience of other places that you can compare and contrast. And maybe as an outsider, an ability to ask difficult questions or... You know, say things that appear stupid. And so that that is what uh, I'm trying to be today, both stupid and challenging, perhaps. And this thing about time, so what I'm going to talk about is really uh, long-term strategic things rather than short-term tactical things. Because it seems to me many at, at the root of many of the frustrations of dwelling here that we've seen is that many of the things that affect you are controlled or influenced externally by people and organisations that are not vested in this place and don't really understand its lived reality well. And as a result, uh, they design poor interventions that are intended to support you, but are often not that effective. And I guess, you know, this road that you're travelling on, this route to a thriving community, will include gathering in the tools of control and foraging for access to resources. Because as long as people have lived in this place, which is maybe, you know, 11,500 years, nature has provided everything necessary for people to thrive here. And, and when I thought about that, I identified probably three fundamental things. The first is geography. So you're an island, and so your territory encompasses both the land and the sea, and that whole, the yin and the yang, is an incredibly powerful physical and cultural environment to live in. And you know that that's a, a restless relationship full of potential abundant and diverse resources, but also a threat uh, and a lot of unknown as well. 
And I know that you've been listening both to the sea and to the land, and that, including these voices in your community of place, as happens with the Embassy of the North Sea, will be an important factor in sustaining a respectful relationship to place rather than an exploitative and an extractive one. And the second aspect was, was about community. And no one can survive here as an individual. You only really make sense as a community. Communities have always held diversity as part of that strength, diversity of gender, of age, of experience, of ability, of skills and of roles in the community. And, and your community now is much more diverse than it's ever been in the past. Uh, and that is part of your abundance. Um, but it's held back by, you know, perceptions of com competing interests, attachments to 19th century concepts of ownership, unfamiliarity with difference, and other factors limiting co community cohesion. And the more you can find ways of pooling interests, uh, recognising diversity as strength, and sharing resources, the more you will thrive and if you can find the right processes, it should be a, a growing accumulative uh, strength. And the third aspect, you know, from the past uh, that's inherent to the place is about connection. Uh, a distinct place uh, with a strong identity, your relationship to the rest of the world is extremely important. It's behind many of the current economic, environmental and social stresses uh, and manifests itself in many different ways. You know, there's the internet connection, which inhibits your ability to engage with people outside, as we've seen uh, with our, our friend in Turkey. And with the internet, you know, I do think this is more or less a human right and a functional necessity to play an active role in the world. But there's also, you know, access to health and public services, the economy of agriculture, the provision of ferries, occupation of home by non-residents, and the impacts of tourist vehicles on transport and other infrastructure. Um, and these are, these are individual tangible things uh, that if addressed will help you to thrive. But this will happen most successfully if you have an equal, if not a controlling voice over how that connection uh, is managed and, and your place, your best place to mediate how you want that relationship to develop the relationship with, with the outside world. And, and I guess, you know, in the past few days, we've sailed on a, on a sailing boat around the coast, but we've also seen a sort of a massive cruise ship off the coast and there's a mismatch uh, there. That uh, cruise ship is surely an example of an inappropriate connection, an uninvited external threat to your environment, culture and economy that has no place in a respectful relationship. Of course, um, relationships and dialogues are two-way activities. A stronger voice in that economic, cultural and environmental dialogue will also help improve the external understanding of you as a community and a place and what they expect and ask of you as uh, will help you define a better offering to the rest of the world. Because I think um, you also have much to give if you can move from visitors coming and taking experiences uh, to you having things to share. It's more of a, uh, a Mesolithic than a Viking model of cultural and economic exchange. And thinking about what you as a community has uh, in your abundance to offer our global community, from, from my work, I see something that you have that is scarce uh, and will become increasingly valuable to others. And this really relates to climate change. So as a coastal community, you, you're one of billions around the world whose next two generations will be uh, directly affected by rising sea levels, increasing storm surge, and increasingly severe rainfall events. Across Scotland, our infrastructure 
is not ready for that. Just last year, you know, we had a, the road at the rest and we thankful closed multiple times because of landslides. You had a, a railway embankment collapse, killing three people at Stonehaven and the Fourth and Clyde Canal breached its banks and closed the Edinburgh to Glasgow Railway. And that's really, uh, you know, um, an appetizer of what's to come. The centre of Glasgow, the venue for COP26, is predicted to be underwater by 2050. Uh, and this is coming to us all. Uh, so the, the rest of the century is going to bring a huge amount of economic and social disruption, loss of life and anxiety to communities across Scotland. Uh, and the vast majority of these communities are not used to living close to nature, to understanding its forces and the need to adapt and sustain communities in place. Places like this have an abundance of resilience of learning to live with the threat and uncertainties of sea and climate accrued over four or 500 generations. By fortifying your own community with these changes to come, building uh, from community cohesion and relationship to place, you will have much to offer as a model to other communities that lack that preparedness, experience, adaptability and resilience that are characteristic to your community. You know, as Iona was an exemplar of ethics and education to Scotland in the past, so our island communities can become exemplars of resilience in the face of climate change. And in that, connect to other island communities around the globe, which often have fewer resources to cope with that change. So having said all that, I, then th I, I tried to say something that might actually be useful, and I came up with uh, six specific action points. <laughs> if, that's, if I'm not going on too long, <laughs> which I'll... Hmm which I will try and speak as clearly and as briefly as I can. So the first one um, is about ferries. So I, these are my recommendations. <clears throat> uh, I think you should foster a network of island communities to request you take ownership of CalMAT from the Scottish Government, uh, bringing both power and responsibilities to the communities directly affected by ferries, and, and lots of good things would come from that as a consequence. Uh, the second is about food. Work with food as a route to community cohesion. Uh, you know, as we've seen from the uh, bacteria, it's, uh, it's a fundamental human thing that people share. It relates directly to place, to heritage, to health, economy, skills and families. Uh, it's unthreatening and will bring people together in a way nothing else can. Uh, diversity. There's a lot about diversity uh, to be worked on. It's uh, having a subtle but deep ethic of inclusion will be really important in making everything else work. Uh, there are issues of inclusion to work on here, and you should systematically listen to uh, your people's different voices, learn about best practice, and gently implement progressive strategies. It will make a really powerful tool for change uh, to a happier place. Uh, and then the fourth one is intergenerational. Uh, so think about age. We're well on the way to a major demographic shift to an older population, and, and we need to think of older people as an increasing resource in that context, but it will have a major effect on all aspects of community life. Don't expect local and national government to sort this out for you. Uh, they won't. They're really behind the curve. Uh, you should develop uh, specific demographic projections for Mull and assess their likely social and economic impacts, and then research best practice strategies globally. There is a lot of good stuff out there. Uh, and global networks about this and develop targeted strategies and then uh, demand state sector support. And I think Public Health Scotland are a good potential partner uh, in that work. The fifth one, 
and there's only one marathon. Uh, it's about it's about buildings, so I'd say it's about buildings. Uh, so it'd be really nice if you could do some work in your building culture, which isn't brilliant. Construction is one of our, although this this building is lovely and well accomplished. <laughs> construction is one of um, our most environmentally polluting, least gender uh, equal most patriarchal and least progressive industries, and its current condition impairs economic, social, health, and cultural outcomes for your community. You know, it could be a really great driver for local economy, health, climate resilience, vocational skills, uh, and local natural environment. You know, there's a whole lecture about that, but that's not keep it to that. And, and the sixth one was Gaelic. I think, um, I know it's tough, but uh, the Gaelic language is the subsoil of your culture, nature being the bedrock. If you systematically foster its flowering, it will reinforce all your other activities and outcomes. Use your creativity for innovative approaches and seek external partners. And that was it. The only thing I would, I would add to that really is um, an indicator of progress is, is the thing about gender, because um, we should look to women to lead this process for a host of reasons that we don't have time to go into. But it's interesting here, we've got, you know, 10 women. Well, if uh, Asley was here, 10 women, five men. That's probably about the right balance for... <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. Women are, will lead this community better than men generally. Uh, you know, it's a broad generalization, speaking as a man. Um, so I think the balance we have here of, of two to one is a sign of, of a sort of progressive group for leadership. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I spoke oh, so long. Thank you, I'm a little worried about your throat. I think uh, you need a glass of water now, right? Yes. So, yeah, that was a lot to take in. Did you, could you keep track, Sophie? <coughs> <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> because it's so much, we don't want to get it lost on the way. Is there somebody who would like to tap into one of the issues? Like ownership, gender, the patriarchy? Yes? Just uh, naming. I try random. to keep it myself. It's heavy. Yeah. It helps you to not speak too long. Um, yeah, I would like to respond to um, what Anna said and also, sorry, your name again? Tom. Tom? Tom. Tom. Um, but I don't quite know how to do it. Um, I, I speak from a place of also having partly an outside perspective. I just moved here three years ago, um, so I'm not really a local yet. <laughs> um, it feels partly as my place, but not completely. Um, and being here three, three years also where I am at the moment is to a large extent also a disillusioning process <laughs> um, or um, giving up ideals that you had and came with. And um, so when Anna spoke, um, it resonated very strongly that she, like one of her first impressions she was, this is an ideal place to do this and this and um, could be a role model for a lot of things. It's, it's got so much potential and and also in your long list of, of different things, it all was very idealistic and looking, uh, yeah, it's full of good ideas and, and regarding the history and, and moving on out of a coherent concept that the place provides. And being here three years, it just 
makes you learn that all of this is so far from 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 a true possibility because uh, you need the people and um, really the you need first need to have that community to to do that or to be willing to do that um, and uh, maybe un, uh, Hannah will speak about it but I was completely shocked when uh, one of these survey results <laughs> of it was I don't know I think it was a different survey um, was done during the lockdown and people were asked what's what's the main source of pain or what's what's your pain points during the pandemic um, and of course everyone ex expected well it's loneliness or some things like that but number one was the bad internet connection <laughs> um, and in that I see like one of the big divides of, of kind of what is the, the real need here of, of, of the main people and what is um, what might be actually the real need I mean you you actually Tom, I'm talking about you. Um, like when you talked about like climate change or, or what kind of could be developed here, that in, in, in it's actually very true that in the future people will look to experiences that that are done in places like here. But at the moment, and we have some other crofters here as well, it's just completely different. Um, there is no real need for these things within most people here. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's always like some subcultures who, who are trying to do things differently. But I would say the majority, um, like like crofters who haven't even thought about selling meat locally or something, um, it's just also a reality that lives here. And yeah, I would like to add a, a story to that, um, which refers to your beach clean. <laughs> uh, last year in in winter, I've I found a dead otter on our land. And um, when otters get found dead and they are sent to Cardiff University to have an autopsy, and they looked at it very thoroughly, and um, it's plastic pollution that killed it. Yeah, but it's not uh, actual plastic. It's more like um, chemicals coming out of the plastic that then add up in the tissue. Um, Yeah, I also participated in beach cleans, and I think it's a very important thing to do. But um, now, please don't understand me wrong. Um, it's also fake. Uh, you, you're faking reality by doing it. Um, the reality is there is all this plastic, and the plastic is there for some reason. And the reason is our our lifestyles. And even if if all these all these ideals that we have and the changes that we're doing. We still are the cause for uh, for the rubbish ending up in the sea, um, and um, yeah, just one example, uh, like um, the microplastics that end up by our, in our washing machines coming out of our synthetic clothes, or even in the in the washing detergents, which goes in unfiltered into the sea here, in in every place, and. Yeah, I just just want to show you this because the the discrepancy or the pain that that comes out of this that um, we're talking about wonderful things and we're doing beach cleans, but at the same time we are really literally the source of the problem. And um, yeah, this is three years of experiences or more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anna, would you like to? I think you 
Uh, Judy would like to respond. Yeah, I would actually. Um, so I've, I've been here five years. <laughs> um, and I, I hear what you're saying, but I actually see the beginnings of a lot of really positive things that are happening on the Ross of Mull. Um, which may not solve everything, but I think there's a real feeling from people wanting to come together to make things better, even if it's in a local way. And I think sometimes that the problems of the world can seem so immense that you can just retreat inside yourself and feel incapable of doing anything, but you can get a huge amount of sustenance by working with people and doing something in a local way way that may improve things locally, but can also have a ripple on effect because other people hear about that happening and they say, oh, we could try that where we're doing it and so on. And so change happens. Whether or not it happens fast enough for the situation the world's in, I don't know, but that's not enough to give up on that. So I wanted to give you just a few examples and it echoes into Anna because you talked about um, local food um, I think there's a lot of potential on Mull, and I think there are things that are happening. There are local farms that are producing. There's, a, there's an industry that does uh, pig products. You can buy them in the local shops. You can go to places and get organic meat. John sells organic meat. You can go to the weavery at Ardalanish and get organic beef, organic lamb, venison. Um, you can get eggs from people. Um, there's more examples of people producing vegetables locally that you can buy. Um, there's a situation in Derveg and there's one in Benesson where people have come together to do local community gardens, um, which I'm involved in the Benesson one and it's only taken, it's just happened during COVID and it's a really positive feeling nice. of where that's going and Derveg is starting, have just started one up in Derveg and that's really pulling people in and with the idea of encouraging people to grow their own vegetables and share their own vegetables and learn how to grow vegetables. And um, so those, these things are just some examples of things that are starting locally. And I think Schmidt is a great example of a local organization that is promoting local activities and helping businesses get started that are bringing back employment into the area and generating hope. So for me, just being here five years, I came not really knowing what was going on here. I mean, I knew it from a holiday perspective, but living here, I've really felt like this is a really exciting place to be. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that are starting to happen. You kind of want to get involved in all of them, but they're, mm -hmm. they're just starting. So I feel, yeah, <laughs> I just feel that's nice. important. Yeah. Would the disillusion um, idealist like to respond to that quickly <laughs> maybe you don't have to um, it's all true probably well we could start of course a discussion about it but um, I think it's nice just to have different perspectives yeah. and it's good to also have like this more positive which of course I also have I mean we all have different sides in us and we get back to it let's move on to Reiko <laughs> would you be happy to take the mic Yes. Oh, Here you can, go. Can I just take it? Okay. But you have to hold it sort of close yes. to your mouth. Yeah. Um, how to how to start? Um, how to start? Okay. So uh, we arrived. We were arrived uh, last Tuesday, Tuesday evening, and then Wednesday we did the huge event, the collecting plastics in the beach, and. Uh, they organized sailboat 
So uh, on the way, uh, we sailed, and then we on the way back, you know, we dumped huge amount of plastic to the shore. It was um, kind of amazing experience. I didn't really feel something, this is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> uh, there are more the, the issues deeply embedded about those plastics, where they come from. But that's a good um, way to extend our experience. But if we didn't do it, probably we didn't know. So even it's a, um, it's not a just clean, it's a clean up, didn't do the clean, but with something learned, you know, response, that was really important for me. Um, I lived in Stonehaven for over one year, and then uh, it was a council housing, and then from the window, the bathroom window, <laughs> I could see the, the uh, seashore, and I saw one big white ramp and then uh, I, um, I brought up my small binocular and then looked, oh, it's a swan. <laughs> What's going on? The swan is sitting on the beach. And then it was like 7 a.m. And then dogs started showing up and then swan, you know, going towards the swan. And then swan didn't move much was alive. And then I just started worrying and I called SPCA, you know, uh, something's wrong. And then SPCA said, well, we cannot go unless you catch it. Well, I don't know what to do, but I went to there. And then I just didn't know, you know, how to convince the swan I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> I roared myself like a duck and then started moving. And then <laughs> and I caught it. But the carrying was just astonishing. The, the weight of the swan was not like pelicans, you know, really dense. And I became like, just like those Alice wander around, the huge neck was, you know, going like this and, then, and like this. And I was wearing the... Grasses not to be attacked by the swan. And then I brought back to the council housing and then the very old lady, 80, over 80 year old, what are you doing on the whole end? And, and then so I said, Margaret, could you please, you know, uh, phone, phone the SPCA because they might not understand what I'm saying. And then she, you know, phoned. And meanwhile, she said, would you like to have a cup of tea? <laughs> and then Swan, it, it, I should make it a so, short story, but it just the memory comes back so vividly. Um, yes, Swan, you know, I um, gave neck massage and then they came and then brought. But anyway, the result you want to know, the, um, eventually um, the Swan died a few, a few days later, but the, the cause was the bullet you know, the hunters use. That was bullet to suck. <laughs> I don't know, I have never used guns, but that, that goes into the water, right? And then the, their bottle, you know, they eat plants in the water. And then the, so lead poisoning, like uh, that caused the death. But those are, you know, long story, I'm sorry. It's not just rescuing, but, you know, uh, through this incident, I experienced deeply and I will never forget about what, what caused. So, so that was a kind of response to you. Um, but yes, last night we were told, uh, we did some brainstorm and what is abundance here? And then abundance here is nature. 
you know, it's no doubt water, land, uh, plants, um, um, wildlife. It's just the abundance of nature. Because of that, we are, I am here. <laughs> I, I am here. Without them, I cannot live. You know, um, I cannot find myself. I cannot sustain just living in amongst human beings. That's why I like to work with nature. So uh, what I need to say, yes, one more thing is uh, I really wanted to just add it to the story before going uh, moving forward. So that after Tuesday, uh, the, the came back and then we, uh, we were eating here and then went back home by ourselves and then we got lost. And then <laughs> Julie saved us <laughs> how to get back to the home, the accommodation we are staying. And then she also, she asked us what we did. And then she also said, oh, we do that around here. Mm, that's right. <laughs> Should be, because it's not just the beach, it's happening everywhere. And then, you know, but I don't see any, you know, really rubbish around here. So, yeah, most local people are doing this. No, that's really amazing. Uh, Tim and I live in Glasgow, and then we are involved by a community called Hamilton's Hill Clay Pits Local Nature Reserve, which is an area north Glasgow. And then now it's just, I mean, for many, many years, just the derelict land, the people brought lots of lots of garbage to throw. And then now it became a nature reserve because it's very close to the city, and then wildlife are coming back. And then once a month, so we do the cleanup, uh, bird watching, and guided walk. So many, many events are happening in, in uh, every month. But what, what I learned from that is going to many people and they clean up. It's the text that you're paying away. How easy, you know? It's almost magic. If you do it, you know, it just becomes sour and negative and then, you know, I don't want to live with people, that kind of feeling. But when you do it with other people, it's a totally different thing. Um, so that's when, you know, Judy says that, you know, just opens up another part of, you know, uh, my memories and experience, uh, how important it is. Um, and then my last question, sorry, my last question is, you know, if nature is so rich, if environment is so wonderful, based on that, what can you build? You know, art is art, you know, literature, poems, they're all connected to the, you know, uh, environment, right? And then, so what can we, you know, what's the result? I started seeing, you know, being in your house, you know, but I like to see more outside, you know, how culture is built uh, based on this abundance of nature. Well, after this ultimate pep talk, does anybody want to respond to this? Ode to the community or ode to Ras of Mull? Yes, Rebecca? Um, so uh, I deal with stories for a living. And I think communities are defined and created by the stories that they tell about themselves. And I'm an outsider here and I do not presume ever to think that I'm not going to be an outsider. If I die here, I'll still be an outsider. Um, <laughs> and I, I hear a lot of stories about this place. I hear the stories about the clearances and the legacy of the clearances and colonialism and this place as 
an occupied or conquered or oppressed place. Um, I was over in Alva yesterday and I was just reading some of the history of people starving to death um, and thinking that they didn't have enough because someone else was taking space that they could have used, essentially. And that felt a lot like the tension that there is on the island around holiday homes and around outsiders, like me, um, coming here and buying space and taking space that they may or may not have earned. And so I, I thought about that story, about that story of oppression and its replication, the replication of the oppression of market capitalism, I suppose, that is happening again now. And that, but there's a weird thing now because the people that own the holiday homes, a lot of them are folk that live here or that have lived here in the past, not all of them, but some of them. So there's an element of being complicit in your own oppression, which is complex. So that's one story that I think has to be thought and talked about. Um, also, I hear a story about the beauty of nature. And this place is beautiful. I grew up in a place not unlike this in Greece, um, in a very remote island with the fishing community. And there, the beauty has been in most places completely laid waste by tourism. And you can't... You can't even pretend that humans aren't ruining the world. Here you can still pretend if you like frame your view properly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think about beauty and it's, it, it has an attraction. And, and I think about, again, market capitalism and because there isn't enough, because people are hoarding too much, tourism is a major industry in this place. And so... We as a community need the tourists, need the visitors to survive. But also the presence of those visitors is one of the things that is making us need the visitors because they're taking up more space that we could, we, I, as if I get to be a we here, um, that the people that are from this place could have. Um, and also they're destroying the thing they're coming to see. Um, with the big camper vans that turn around and run over things and pump chemicals into drains and with, you know, the everything. <laughs> um, and so I think there's a complexity there. Like this story about this place is a beautiful place and a remote place. You can't, I can't drive down the road. I was nearly late today to pick you up because I was stuck behind many, many people in camper vans <laughs> And I was also driving a petrol car. So you can't live here without a petrol car. You can't function. So again, this kind of complicity in our own destruction is central to that, the, those stories that we're telling. Anna, do you want to respond short? Short. Yeah, yeah I, I just want to shortly add something because I've, I've forgotten it's in my... Um first round but Rebecca it reminded me just what she was saying now about the um, the tourist survey so I would just like to put it on the table and of course we're going to get back to that with you 
Um, one of the things mentioned in the beginning of the tourist survey was uh, how tourism actually affects quality of life on the island. And I would be very interested to hear from you what actually that quality of life means to you. Thank you. So um, I think it's probably the hottest topic on most islands, Hebrides, uh, Western Isles, the whole of the Highlands of Scotland and 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 the UK as a whole. Um, tourism is obviously... Um, we, we've always had tourism, tourism here and it's always been quite an abundant kind of um, way of making a living, but I, I think it's changed from... Um, a lot of locals having maybe a granny's house or you know uh, something that's been inherited rented out for the summer to none of these houses existing anymore and being in, in a kind of architecture um, uh, like di, di, um, what's the word talking about architecture and things that um there, there's no avail availability of houses now because all the little crofts like this, which is an identical uh, picture of my house, uh, <laughs> very lucky me, um, they're on Mull as as an example, which is a very good example of how all the islands are not the same. The differences between all of them uh, and highlands as well is that on Mull, you can't find a house that looks like this. You can't find a ruin. There's, I can think of two ruins maybe on the Ross of Mull. Every single one of them has been bought and made, not made into a, a sort of modest family home, but a big architectural wonder. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a quite a talking point because now that means that that once little cottage... Um, that could have t turned over a few families, um, I don't know, and sustained people in the school and jobs and ferry crew or whatever um, is only ever going to belong to someone that um, moves up from England um, because the, the difference in, in, you know, you can sell a house, a, a, an ordinary council house for half a million pounds and buy a really incredibly beautiful house up here for less than that and have a good bit of change. So I think um, one of the things about the quality of life is that people like me, you have to you have to have luck on your side in order to, well now I, I believe, in order to be able to sustain your life here. And, and I um just a little bit of of my background. I'm from Dunkeld originally and I um met a mulach of 5 million years, uh McLean. <laughs> uh so um I was kind of immediately accepted into the community as, as well in that way and, and and in that um just having local connections makes it so much easier to move here. I I didn't ever really struggle with that because everybody knew Soren or, or who, who, you know, lots of friends through him. So, um, but I was only 21 and I am a musician and so Soren um, and we lived in Glasgow for a couple of years before that. And everybody said we were crazy, including mums and dads and, you know, what on earth are you moving to Mull for? You should be moving to London. 
so by age 21, we managed to find a little cabin on the side of a hill in Carsig, just in the south. Um, and yeah, we just, we were lucky enough to have kind of established careers very young in music. So we lived here and we worked away. And back then, the difference in being able to work away uh, then and now, which I'm kind of only just thinking about now, is astronomical. Um, we could get on a ferry. It was much more expensive, but we could buy three three journey tickets. Um, I suppose tourists probably could if they were coming often enough as well. It wasn't just for locals, but that option was there. Um, we weren't ever really, really stressed about getting places. Tourism was there, but it wasn't a, um, you know, you could still buy a house for a, a slightly inflated, but not humongously inflated price. Um, so I think in the, how many years is that? Nine years that I've been here, um, the quality of life, the quality of my life has improved because I have, I, I feel like I am very much part of this community and I do lots of things here. And and I was able to, I, and I have a lovely little house. Um, but I don't think 21-year-old me now, in fact, I'm pretty certain they couldn't, that couldn't happen now. That, that cabin that I moved into um, for a very, very small amount of money in return to feed the cat... Uh, of the big house is now a holiday let. And, and I live in Contra, which has 11 houses, and only two of them are lived in. One's, one of them's mine. So when, yeah, quality of life is, is hugely, um, we're hugely lucky in so many ways. We have space and, and I feel very, yeah, like we have a good opportunity for a healthy lifestyle, healthy connection to people, environment, wildlife, culture, although dwindling in many places, but um, in other aspects, very difficult. And things like internet as well, it can be a real positive because I can send files recording to Japan or America or whatever, but also internet is is like the bane of the island's life. And Sky as well, I went on just to check this last night that... Um, there are 89,000 pictures on Instagram of the fairy pools and staff has kind of going that way too. So we we kind of had a suggestion at the SMID, one of our SMID meetings to kind of step away from the internet and try and kind of make social media uh, a bit of, you know, you don't want to be seen taking a photo of staff because, you know, you just want to enjoy it rather than getting there to take a photo of the puffins and then turning around and going back yeah. to the mainland. So highs and lows in both, in both places. Pass it on to somebody else. Thank you, Hannah. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, the floor is filling up with lots of notions, and I think we'll, we'll get back to this tension between tourists and inhabitants of, permanent inhabitants of Mull. Um, but I suggested before we take a break, we go to Tim to share some of his experiences of the last couple of days and maybe pose a question or add a notion to the floor. Hi there. We're, in some ways, the most useless people here. <laughs> um, you know, we're absolutely 
committed to the evolution of our own subjectivity, which means we wander through the world looking to satisfy our curiosity and find something that's going to completely knock us off balance, make us reconsider what we understand about the world, um, and put us in a place of, of um, dynamic reflection and hopefully dynamic reflection with others uh, because that's what pushes us in a lot of ways back and forth. So it's odd that on our way here at 100 miles an hour with Terry, <laughs> so that with my heart in my mouth, we started to come up the hill. And he started to talk. He goes, you know, we do a lot of things here. And he's talk, he talks as fast as he drives, yeah? So he's, he's talking about rewilding and restoration and this eco-community eco project, and it's crazy. And they had trucks going up and down the road and it destroyed the road. And he's just going on and on and on and on. And, you know, so that kind of stuck with me, yeah? I was just like, that's a curious way to get up here. And, uh, and then we're going back and forth to a raid and walking across the water and, you know, all that's good. And, and then yesterday, we, did, you know, we, we, kept, we kept hearing about Terrarigan. And, you know, we talked about exiting the boat to go to Terrarigan. Then we realized there was a mountain of shit on the boat that needed to be offloaded at uh, Fianna Fort, so we stayed on the boat. Um, but so we, we decide to go, and we're talking about going, and you know, I'm absolutely convinced that the best and worst things in our lives, those things that we can't forget, are part and parcel of those things that are going to change our relationship to the world. So the fact that I kept falling into this thing, and it was positive and negative, it was an ideal, a vision, and a complete failure in some ways, you know, was on our mind as we walked back through the, um, through the property here. And we, we hit the stones, yeah? No wonder they're pissed off about the stones. I can barely walk on the stones. They're monster stones, better fit for a highway than for a human being. You know, you would never want to take a horse or a, a critter on it, you know, it'd just be cruelty. And we're like, what the hell were they thinking? But then we go through the gate, and there's a raised bog to the left. And we've just spent six months in Ireland and working on raised bogs. And we're like, holy shit, there's a raised bog here. And then Reiko says, well, wait a minute. They're draining it, you know. And this is the bane of the bog's existence. And it's not supposed to be happening by everything I know about Scottish regulations. But that bog's still healthy. A couple of, dra a couple of drain stoppers, it'll be fine. So we keep going, yeah, and we get, to the, we get to the deer fence. So people call them deer fences, but they're not deer fences. They're laird fences. The bottom line is these people claim ownership of the deer. They claim the, the sole right to harvest the deer, yet they graze them across the entire island. Island, yeah? And if you want to have a crop, you have to put up layered fencing to keep their deer the hell out of your property, which is, you know, from an American point of view, this is really fucking perverse, yeah? They got the money. Um, so, so there was something curious. So we go through the gate. We like going through the gate. And we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in um, a sea of vegetation, and we're working our way through things. 
and uh, wandering around and, you know, this, this, this lovely oak hazel uh, rainforest and, you know, it's, it's low and meaningful and the landscape's dynamic and, you know, Martin told us exactly how to get around it. We're going to go around one hill and be back in an hour and two hours later we're still not back. <laughs> And then, you know, and we saw, we saw some foundations out there. Um, and then all of a sudden we, saw, we find some more foundations. We find four stone ruins out in the middle of nowhere. So obviously this is a village. So all of a sudden it opens up, you know, so, we, so we're going. So the games we're playing in our head and the conversation we're having is about restoring land, restore, restoration ecology. It's about uh, carbon sequestration and biodiversity. It's about rewilding. And the thing that I forgot to say, we'll come back to rewilding in a minute. So um, we keep going, yeah? And um, we're a little taken away by the land. Yeah, we're off with the fairies. It's, you know, it's all good, but it's two and a half hours in, three hours. We're at the coast, but it's the wrong coast. Yeah, it's the opposite coast from here. So we're like, oh, shit. So Rachel says, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't think our phone's working. I've got an OS map on my phone, but I can't get to my OS map. And she goes, no, 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 we got a compass on our phone. So she, ha she had a, taken a photo of the map before we left the house, and we put the compass against it. We found our way back. We just retraced our route, yeah. So we come back, and on the way back, uh, you know, we're walking towards the gate uh, to get beyond the, uh, the Laird's fence. And all of a sudden, we see the, yeah, Rico says, cows. cows. She goes, look at those cows. They're huge. I said, Rico, they're not cows. Those are deer. That's a herd of stags. So there's 20 stags on John's land, yeah? And so, you know, we're quite taken by all of that. And, you know, so we, so we come back and we're just, just reflecting on all of this. So, you know, talking to, talking to John about this, you know, he, he, you know I just assumed, you know, I've read most of the deer management studies that are done in Scotland. I'm interesting in, interested in nature, culture, relationships, and... I said, John, as a significant landowner, you must be on the management board. And he says, no, 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 I'm a crofter. He, he said, uh, the, 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 uh, the Lord here, the Laird, is on the management board. Um, I've only got a right to shoot uh, things that are harassing my, my uh, livestock. Um, so, you know, there are questions. So, so I've, recently I've been in a long dialogue about rewilding and what that means. And, you know, there's lots of arguments about it. And I've had lots of discussions about it since I've been here. On the boat, there was a grand discussion. I sat, sat next to Anna and, the, you know, there were all these positions about what rewilding means. And I've become pretty clear through this discussion that I participate in daily that Rewilding is actually something between con land conservation and land restoration. It's the sticky cultural concept that feels good in our head, that provokes us to the position of feeling some need to do more for nature. Um, and you'll get positions where people say, what we need to do for nature is leave it alone and step away from it forever. But I'm absolutely convinced that 
human beings have a role in nature and that indeed everybody that's here is here because of nature, culture, interrelationships and meanings. So I guess when we think about transformative things, um, it seems in this particular area, the thorn, um, the idea, the concept that's festering is this idea of a, a, a rewilded, uh, an ecologically restored area of, of, of this part of Mull uh, that's not resolved, yeah. It's being held in stasis at the moment, but it seems like there's this potential at Terrarigan to, you know, so f from our point of view, we're interested in the discourse, we're interested in the shifting values, we're interested in the arguments about what rewilding means in a community, um, and we're interested in how those kinds of ideas start to reshape the utility values that dominate places like this. Um, that's my useless artist's position. <laughs> or our useless artist's position, since we... Well, useless, but interesting. So the floor has been filling up. I think it's time for a break. Or we think it's time for a break, right, Sophie? Just checking. Yeah, I, 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 I read two voices have not been heard. Those of Vari and Naoko, but I think we'll give you the floor right after the break. So we can indeed take a bit of fresh air and um, keep on going. Keep on going. Break. <laughs> Microphone off. Okay. Welcome back. Welcome back to Round and About Radio. <laughs> Round two. <laughs> Round number two. The people of Round and About don't know about this, actually. That would totally hitch, uh, uh, hijack their brand. But it might be a good idea, Round and About Radio. So we had an idea for the second round. Uh, we would like to keep the second round 30 minutes, uh, just to also keep up the energies. And Vari has a ferry to catch, so that's a reality <laughs> we're going to keep in mind. Uh, and um, Martin behind me is our timekeeper, so, and I have my back to him, so if you see him making strange movements, kind of <laughs> notify me. <laughs> um, our idea for this second round was to see if we could pay a tribute to a person that we encountered, thanks to Judy, your father, Tony Gibson. We were wondering if we could pay a tribute to his work um, by um, attempting to use a part, a fragment of, of a great method that he developed. And maybe you want to say something about that. Yeah, I'd like to say something about that, um, because it's also linked to here. Because Tony Gibson um, was making a radio program for the BBC about the Iona community in the 1950s. And um, he and his wife liked it so much that they rented summer houses on Iona and later on found this place on Air Aid to continue spending their summers. And um, what Tony Gibson did, building over the years with lots of experience, he built a toolkit for local democracies or local communities to, to sort of make a more qualitative uh, uh, process that leads to decision-making locally. And what he found out, and I, I will, 
I can pass a, a photograph around and for the radio I will describe it. You see it's definitely the 70s and you see a big group of people together in the church, the town church, and they build like a huge maquette together. It's, it's With uh, milk cartons and, you know. Yeah, cardboard houses, but it's big. So you, you, you can represent a building by using an old milk carton as the building. And by that, everybody contributes to the image or to, to, to the problem that needs to be solved or to the future that needs to shape up or to the change that needs to be made. So everybody is equally part of the visualization of what we talk about. And we were so uh, touched by the image, but also by the toolkit that later on Judy handed to us, that we were thinking of using some of Tony Gibson's tools <laughs> in this second part of the talk. And now I hand it over to Sophie because she's the master of ceremonies here. I will, show, I will lay this on the floor and maybe Sophie can say something about it. You can look at it as, as filters. So one, one filter we see on the floor is uh, now, soon, later. And uh, I, ha we ha I have to confess, we haven't read all the footnotes and I haven't even read Tony Gibson's book in this week. We, hadn't, we didn't have time. So the interpretation we're going to make of it now is our, is our personal subjective interpretation. But um, it could be, ideally, if you look at these filters, so now, soon, later, uh, what we all reject, what we all accept, possible compromise. Tough decisions. And too hot to handle. That's a great category. <laughs> there are probably uh, issues here lying around that we've addressed in the first round that are too hot to handle. And then you've got easy decision, not clear, needs more information, too difficult to decide now, and not worth bothering. <laughs> Equally interesting category. <laughs> Ideally, of course, it would be wonderful if in, in 30 minutes we could arrive at a uh, what we all accept easy decision now. <laughs> that's like, you know, that's the idealist artist speaking here. I don't think that's very realistic and I don't think that's something we necessarily need to pursue. So we also have, we wouldn't, that's the Royal Mail bus that you love so much behind. <laughs> we wouldn't be Eric and Sophie if we wouldn't just let go of this plan at this point and um, throw a plan B in the group, <laughs> being perhaps uh, you just want to bring back into the group what you discussed over the break outside um, because everyone mingled with everyone in different little groups and maybe things were said there that shed light on uh, all the issues that were brought into the circle in the first round. Um, and I would, um, in whatever we decide to do, I'll let go of it now, but uh, whatever we decide to do, I'll be giving the mic to Vari first if you accept. Vari, do you accept? <laughs> I'll just say thank you to begin with um, for the invitation to be here and for everybody being so open in their sharing of thoughts and experiences. And it's already been an incredibly rich afternoon and entangled and colourful looking at the floor. And um, I suppose some things have I've heard louder than others in the the last uh, hour and a half, couple of hours. Um, I thought about Lucy Lippard's quote uh, book, Undermining, 
and that the global is just the sum of many locals and that there is deep and rich learning in community and that self-organisation and space and time are really important to bring that learning to the surface. I also was really conscious that everybody in this space is speaking from an incredibly privileged perspective and that we have all chosen um, in terms of the residents of Mull, I live in Iona, we've all chosen to this lifestyle. We haven't inherited it. We haven't had to carry the burden of it um, without wanting to carry that burden or intentionally knowing we would take that responsibility on. So I think it's important to recognise diversity as being um, different layers of um, inheritance of individuals on landscape and what that inheritance carries with it in terms of the psychological relationship to landscape, purpose, intention and community. Um, and in some way that thought was triggered by the, the disappointment that you expressed, is Matthias, um, sorry, um, in that the, the, the thing that people um, were most disappointed in or missed the more with the problem with COVID was, was the internet, the poor internet connection on Mull. And underneath that statement is a, is a really, for me, profound statement of loneliness and desire for connection. And that understanding um, we are in such a privileged position to choose to be in the types of communities that we are in and it takes time and the choice is to take the time to get to know place and that is one good thing you can we can do for the rest of our lives is just know a place, a single place. That's a massive undertaking mm -hmm. um, and I'm really conscious as an islander on an island off another island off the mainland of UK, which is also another island, that that's a responsibility. And in a small community of only what we have in Iona, 140 adults, it's a, it's a responsibility times 100, and it's a massive privilege. Um, and also within our community, there, were people, will, there will be people who are there from a sense of responsibility that has been inherited and not chosen. And all those diverse voices and all those knowledges, all that knowledge um, contributes and space and time has to be made for all of it to come to the surface. Who would, who would like to respond to this beautiful speech? Tim. So, so I think this is this is a um, a really important point that you know some are burdened with their um, their personal cultural history in some ways they they can't they feel like that it's it's something they have to sustain yeah and um, 
So I'm just going to read a quote. We worked with a friend, a philosopher, uh, and we're looking at uh, shale oil bings in uh, just west of Edinburgh. And you know, people were talking about the history and how how the history has been troubled, how the history has been hard, and how we, you know, we want to change the history, how we want to forget the history. And and Pauline is is always to the point. And so this is just one sentence: If we respect the past that had to be the way it was, and for in order for us to be the way we are today. That understanding, the taking account of our own history and feelings, allows us to move into the future in a positive way. And I, th- I, th- I thought when Pauline laid that out, it just put everything into perspective, you know, that, um, that even where there's great struggle, it's, it's part and parcel of who we are today and, and trying to resolve those differences are key. Yeah. I don't know if that contributes in a meaningful way or not. Who wants the mic? I thought so. Time. I think, uh, you know, there was a lot of truth uh, in what you said, uh, Vary. Um, this thing about, you know, burdens of responsibility and of, of uh, you know, generational things from the past uh, and indeed our anxiety about uh, climate change and environmental pollution and so on. It, you know, that's all there, um, but... Um, we can't let that stop us from taking action. We need, no. uh, by developing, uh, being, you know, by having an inclusive community approach, uh, we need to reduce people's uh, uh, burdens and we need to overcome anxiety in order to take effective action. And, uh, you know, this thing about um, having to save nature from, from destruction and so on, do you know, when, when you do analysis about people's motivation for doing environmental change, it's not really about saving nature, it's really about improving your own life. And what we're really trying to do is uh, safeguard this planet as our home as a species. It really, I mean, yeah, like 3% of people want to save others. I know you're in the 3%, but, <laughs> but, but, but most people, the people that really need to change their heads, because we don't need to change your head, uh, they're motivated by what's in their interest. And so understanding that helps us to align to take uh, effective action. Um, and um, he, I've forgotten what the other thing was I was going to say. Because we talked about this in the break a little bit about um, the, the, need, the diversity in the voices and then that it had to lead to effective mm-hmm. action for change. <laughs> Trying. Yeah. So Tom, Tom and I talked a little bit about this in the break, and you made a you made you made that very um, important point that that out of that that the time for that for all the diverse voices to be heard in the space for it that, that that there had to also be action. I think yeah. So the other point I wanted to make was this thing about um, about them and us. Okay, so you've got, you know, the, the people that have been here for 500 years and the people that are blow-ins that have just come off the ferry and, and don't know which way the road goes to the beach. And, and you know, whether you're from England or Scandinavia or the other side of the world, and that 
difference is something that prevents cohesion and therefore effective community action. I think in all of that, when people start talking about difference, you have to see that as a distraction to making progress and that really we are so much more uh, united than we are different and that if we focus on what uh, we carry in common and what we carry in common is our humanity and all these things about food and uh, intergenerational stuff, these are really human things and they will be the things that carry us forward to make progress. And so things that are subjects of conflict, like, you know, vehicles getting off ferries and so on, that's kind of a distraction because you have to see the people in those vehicles, they are the us as well. It's mm -hmm. not a them and us. Mm -hmm. And even the layers and so on, they need to have their minds changed. They need to have their minds changed for them by effective political action. But they are still the us. It's not them and us. It, there is only us. Um, because we're all on this planet. And the people, you know, in these islands that are already underwater, they are the us as well. And, and we need to carry all of that. I think it's a really important point to make. And I think it's particularly naturally being an islander. It's really specific to island living because we have more in common than we have not in common because of the lifestyle that we're leading and the very particular geographical location of that lifestyle. So you can be in a room with another islander that you've never met in your life before and you will find a common subject and immediately you're linking to that humanity, a shared human experience, a, sh a shared set of challenges and perhaps different solutions, but it's a dialogue. Um, I saw you nodding, Rebecca. <laughs> or did I see you <laughs> not nodding? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just thinking about. Um, I was thinking about islandness. Can I give you yeah, my yeah, teacup? I, um, I was thinking about islandness and about the definition of the other and how. Because again, I think about communities in terms of the stories they tell and we all have there are only like seven stories everyone knows that and so this sense of what the thing is that means that you are you versus everyone else and I that I, I was just nodding because I was like yes we are all in fact one <laughs> um but we're choosing it, it's, it's it's often convenient like I, I have been getting cross at the people in camper vans this week and I literally just got off the boat so <laughs> That is really interesting, like that choosing to be in, to be the in group rather than the out group, and it's not a useful thing in the discussion of uh, how to how to deal with climate change. So can I ask two questions? So, so the first question is, you know, and buddy, I'm I'm curious about Iona. Are the are, are the landowners? part of the discourse in the community. And then, of course, that's a question for the rest of Mall. Are the landowners actually in social, political discourse with everybody that lives here? And the third question is, you know, does it make any sense to revive projects like Terrarigan, which uh, was an incredibly provocative idea with a monumental failure um, but has incredible potential, yeah? So those are the two questions that were on my mind. Okay. Because I don't really know the answer to these things. Um, so Iona's quite unusual in the respect that um, it's 
kind of got shared ownership. So some of the land is privately owned by um, independent crofters um, and individuals, and some of the the, the land is. Um, it's actually the whole island is in the care of the people of Scotland. So it's the National Trust for Scotland who, in inverted commas, own, nobody owns Iona. Um, so apart from our Island Butte Council, of course, because they get to make all the decisions about everything. Um, so we don't, we don't have those issues. We have a good relationship with the National Trust. So Iona is, um, the Fraser Foundation passed it to the National Trust to keep it in care for the people of, of Scotland. Um, and your second question about Chirerigan revisiting that, I think we did revisit it on Iona. 15 years ago, the community self-organised um, in response to the need for um, social housing, affordable housing for young families, for single people, for elderly couples, whatever. Um, and it took 15 years, but we created a community. We created what's known as the Glebe, and it's five houses of mixed size with um, different types of, of um, social, you know, uh, different types of combinations of people living in them, um, all who are permanent residents on the island. So we didn't rebuild shillings or steadings, but we recognised a space of land that wasn't occupied by holiday homes. It was the Church of Scotland. They sold it to the to the housing partnership. A charitable trust was set up, and we worked in partnership with the housing partnership. And five houses were built. It took 15 years for our community to do that, but we did it. We've just built we've just built a state of the art village hall, beautifully sensitively done. Um, we're about to we're speed ready to start a um, ground source heat project um, which will supply affordable and green environmentally friendly heating to 35 properties in the island including the cathedral including the abbey and two hotels um, we've got a community energy company and the profits ultimately from the um, ground heat source network will go back into the community energy and the profits will go back into the community that's the efforts of 140 people that's what you can do when you self-organise and you listen and you make space and you take time to know a place and understand it and understand each other. Um, and yeah, it's 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 an amazing privilege to be part of that. So we didn't do Chiredigan, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Hannah would like to say something, because it's about island life and mentality. Um, on the Chirerigan point, um, I, it, I think quite a lot of different people have different opinions, and it's kind of on that rewilding point, isn't it, where what is rewilding and are we just wanting to give these spaces that once were abundant with, you know, villages and families over to nature. They're not, you know, they're artificially barren in a way. And uh, a lot of the time I, w I worry that, um, the, that that would be lost forever. Then what does Chiredigan become? Same with Sheba. I don't know what you think, but, but, um, 
Sheba is another kind of, uh, did, did you, have you walked there? No, um, so it's another um, abandoned village just kind of further, further around the coast. Can I interrupt just for a second, Hannah, that I think it's almost, just, sorry, it's important to say they're cleared villages because I think abandoned almost suggests that, I know Sheba was cleared, so it was forcibly cleared. People were cleared off the land. It's not, it, it's not been um, a process of economic decline like, like St Kilda where people chose said, you know, take us yeah. out of here, move us. Yeah. So what our listeners have... Like, it is abandoned yeah. as we view it from our yeah. perspective now, isn't it? Yeah. Barry, for our listeners, Sorry, no, no. because the clearance is a, is a pretty a historical. historical strong word, mm. and our listeners don't know, all know what it is. Could someone here um, quickly define what clearance is about and what, what it refers to? <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> that was too quick. <laughs> well, yeah, but we also, there's people who haven't spoken yet, I think. Um, um, so the clearances, and, and correct me uh, where I'm wrong, were uh, a process that occurred um, where, uh, well, mm, traditionally, uh, you had um, a process of land uh, ownership in most of the highlands and islands of Scotland, which was based on extended family networks tied back to, uh, through a clan system, uh, clan meaning children, uh, to a head of the clan who um, who um, was responsible for the overall area and its, and its control. Uh, and after the Jacobite Revolution, there was instigated uh, uh, an oppression of the Highland Mountain culture, which involved uh, militarization of the landscape and a change in that relationship of people to place, whereby the chiefs uh, took uh, change from having a kind of a guardianship role, I guess, over uh, the land and people to one of ownership. And there was, uh, an issue, you know, this was really to do with uh, changing from. Uh, uh, a common approach to land and access to natural resources to one based on property, private ownership and the influence of money. And then with agricultural reforms, um, this this changed agricultural practices and there was a process whereby people were replaced with sheep because the people who owned the land could make more money from sheep. This is a gross simplification uh, and, and there was local variation. Uh, I think it's important uh, and this resulted in whole communities being forcibly evicted, uh, people dying, their homes being burnt out and mass emigration to other countries uh, and really a cultural trauma in large parts of the country which uh, you know, still exists to some extent today, both in the people and in the landscape. But it's important always to remember that clearances did happen in the lowlands as well and in the borders, and there were similar processes with slightly different characters that, that happened there as well. Okay, back to okay, Hannah. Back to Hannah. And then around, round and about in that, yes. Naoko, I know I have her in my... <laughs> also, I think important to just note that not all of the abandoned villages were cleared as well. You know, there are things like geography. We've spoken about geography today. And, and today it might be, you know, you might be able to have a comfortable existence with your 
ground source heating and or your air source heating and your yeah car to get your kids to school and all that kind of stuff but um there were a lot of other aspects um clearances is is the 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 biggest one um but I can't really remember what the main point was but I feel like I should pass it on <laughs> sorry don't say sorry. sorry. Not not, necess <laughs> not necessary to say sorry. Naoko, I'm giving you the mic so you can mm -hmm. respond to what has well, been said. That's a responsibility. Hi. Um, I was um, listening to um, what you chipped in and made three notes. One was that the, the, the one question came up was that um, when we became local, when we become local or when we really we are seen as local or we can em embed ourselves in the local community because you mentioned three years you mentioned five years oh no i'm sorry that you mentioned five years and i live in um, i lived in in Auburn for one year and a half but um including lockdown time so um not much but i feel like i'm in the community and then I think that's my opinion, but the, that's something to do with the um, intimacy and responsibility. Responsibility um, came out from lots of you. But um, when we feel intimate relationship with something, my friend artist um, mentioned that uh, that relationship or when you feel intimacy with something, then that means that you share a burden with that with someone. So if this is a we community, then if we share somehow uh, a moment of burden or some kind of shared burden, then we can be a community. And then that's quite right to me. If I um, um, think about, think, think back what I've experienced in Auburn. And the second note is, um, Transition, we, we are in the transition period, I think, in lots of different um, parts, um, especially energy transition and uh, way of life. Um, and then I think Mal Iona has good example of ownership. Um, the transition as well, you know, lots of things are now community owned, which is great, I think. Um, when we think about transition, we should think about the just, um, like just transition. We, we hear a lot in terms of the, the energy transition, but, um, what the, what it means is that, um, when we trans, um, we, when we move on to something or, um, for instance, let's move on to, um, green energy from fossil fuel energy, then we should think about all those people tied to the um, the industry, the all the industry, we, we can't really switch off immediately because there are lots of people living around it and then lots of culture built around it. So we, what what's the realistic way to trans um, the, to to move on to the the, the better um, way of life? And the third note was is. Um, Education. I just wonder that, uh, um, especially rural area or island. Um, I just had a wee chat with my husband who 
now works for Open University. And uh, there seems like I live in Open, so I can't really talk as an islander, but um, there are less um, opportunities to, to, to study um, in the island. I might be wrong, but uh, you know, it's a bit, for instance, the, the high school student I know, um, Monica Atadaranesh, her son um, study in Oban and then come back weekend. That kind of way of it, it's been there for a long time, so it's um, all right, I guess. But um, yeah, I just wonder that if there is a way to educate the people in Ireland in their way, because not necessarily only higher education is going to the the good university in London or Edinburgh. Maybe that might be not the only way to educate people. So I just wonder. Mm. Mill Academy. Yeah, so to traveling academy, I just thought that that, that kind of format might be uh, an interesting format. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm keeping on going on this side. Judy or Judy or Anne. I think Judy we should close. We're sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was. Yeah, just just one thing that I noticed. Um, like, I think I heard it. Uh, you say, Hannah, that there's. Um, it would be such a shame, from my perspective, if um, it is like either it's nature or it's or it's us humans, right, in a, in a place. And I think when you speak about abundance and more thriving, and, um, well, we are all, whether we like it or not, super interconnected with all these other beings. Um, so to, to think only not in the opposition between insiders and outsiders, but also not in the opposition between nature and culture. Uh, and I think Mo is a, such a place... Uh, to get rid of that opposition uh, and to start thinking how can we both thrive and 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 what would that mean and what would it look like and just as in good partnership of course there are places where you allow the other to have space uh, and you, you perhaps don't trespass uh, but how do you form a relationship that works in which both can thrive those are beautiful Maybe beautiful last words, Sophie, for this session. Yeah, if, if time says so, then time says so. <laughs> or are there any urgent things to say? Is there is there a now too hot to handle? <laughs> is there a really a now too hot to handle that still needs to, to be said with. on record without even trying to solve it, but just a, a word? And and otherwise, it we will yes, a now too hot to handle, super short, super short, super Tim. short. So the thing that I think is interesting, last night we were talking about uh, scarcity and abundance. And the thing that never came up in our conversation was heating. And I expect in the winter, you know, in a, a, a very mixed economy here, uh, the availability of heat in a public heating system like that's happening in Iona is a radical shift. Yeah. Um, so that just too hot to that, handle. Yeah, yeah. That just, that, that. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. We're we're going to do one nice round with uh, oh, because yes. um, we forgot. But for our listeners, it's nice to know whose voice is is whose. So, 
<laughs> we will do just one round where you say, hello, my name is Raiko and this is my voice. Or <laughs> I'm, I'm Raiko Goto and I'm Tim Collins. Just hello, that we can, that the listeners can feel like whose voice is who. Hello, I'm Rebecca and this is how I sound. <laughs> hello, I'm Anne and apparently this is me or we. <laughs> hello, I'm Judy and this is my voice. Hi, I'm Naoko, it's my voice. This voice belongs to Renatus. Hi, I'm Tom, this is my voice. I'm Vary and this is my voice. Hello, I'm Hannah and this is my voice. Hello, I'm Rutger and my voice is my password. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Sophie and this is my voice. I'm Mick and I didn't say anything. <laughs> But this is your voice. Hi, I'm Reiko Goto. I am Tim Collins, and Mick has an awful lot to say, even in her silence. <laughs> Maybe also the sound engineer. Hi, I'm Martin. This is my voice. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think we've come to a closure. And um, that means that, Hannah, if you are willing to lead us out of this circle with a, a final tune. It would be wonderful so we can... You can, as you feel, as you feel, whatever you feel fit for this energy at this moment. <laughs> okay. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues. to take any of those home. <laughs> Can I say something as a host? Of course. Right. Of course. Because I was thinking uh, 
about listening, especially to what you were saying. And I realized that um, we are your host here, but um, uh, I felt being a guest in all your stories. And I thought the perspective switch from host to guest is interesting also in belonging and being uh, being local in a way. I mean, it's a privilege to you know feel a bit more local through being your hosts, but then at the same time, I'm you know entering your uh, your story, so I'm, I'm a bit more knowledgeable guest at the moment. Thanks to you. Thank you very much. Any other bonus? <laughs> We're done. We're done. And we invite you for a drink, Amy. We invite you for a drink outside, and I think Vari will catch her very soon. Can you, can you catch it? Yeah, including a drink, I hope. <laughs>